This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 10th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The populist fervor that elected Donald Trump president is concerning for future prospects for liberty, but author and Cato fellow P.J. O'Rourke says not to lose hope. He argues that populist movements tend to have a short half-life. We spoke at the Cato Institute's 40th anniversary celebration held this weekend. Sort of a parallel that you draw uh, out in some of your recent work is uh, an oppressive school marm. Yes. And uh, the kids who are feeling oppressed in the classroom turn to the class bully uh, for something like protection or aid. And that's uh, paralleling our 2016 election. Would you mind drawing that out a little bit? Well, I think it's paralleling not only our uh, 2016 election, but uh, something of a global phenomenon that we're seeing of a rise in kind of angry populism and uh, uh, a rise in um, authoritarian leadership um, or or a tendency to that rise. Um, What I meant by the... um, and the oppressed school kids was really the modern world is uh, is scary and confusing, and it kind of puts a monster at the blackboard. Um, we're going through times of very rapid social change, we're times of very rapid economic change, um, both on a, a, a technological level, obviously with uh, the the um, um, everything to do with the internet, uh, but also globalization on a trade level too, and it just it's just. Uh, even even people who have uh, benefited uh, from these um, um, social and economic changes are, are are still knocked off balance by them a little bit. It's it's disturbing and somewhat frightening. And I think the tendency, normal human tendency under these circumstances, is to um, uh, look for for a strong man. You know, if you if you've got a horrible teacher, um, yeah, you sort of side with the bully at the back of the room. Uh, In your uh, work uh, over the past uh, few years, did did you see this change or this? Uh, I didn't see it coming. This... I really didn't. I was surprised as an ex-person by Brexit. I was at least as surprised as an ex-person by the election of Trump. I assumed right down to. Um, election night that, that, that Hillary Clinton um, would win. Um, I, I was less surprised because of the refugee crisis in uh, Europe to see the rise of some rather unpleasant governments in uh, Hungary, I think, is particularly so. Um, uh, 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 Poland has got less than optimum uh, uh, human rights sort of government. Um, but that, of course, was uh, a direct result of uh, a terribly mishandled refugee crisis and, of course, terribly mishandled foreign policy that led to there being a refugee crisis. And uh, so that, that I sort of expected. I mean, the, the uh, election of Duarte in, um, 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 in uh, the Philippines and caught me totally by surprise. And so I may say has the sort of neo-Maoism of Xi Jinping in, in China. The only place where I really saw this coming and it didn't take much insight was uh, the rise of Putin. I think that uh, uh, anybody who was in the Soviet Union, ex-Soviet Union, in Russia immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union and saw the sort of quality of kleptomaniac incompetence that, that, that took over the, 
uh, the country um, uh, knew something bad was coming. There, there's always been, at least in, in Russia, uh, a more than healthy distrust of media, as there is in a lot of the, the Arab world. But do you think that even after the, the fall of communism that uh, people still never trusted the media and so those institutions couldn't play the role that they otherwise do play in countries like the U.S.? I don't know if they didn't trust them so much as that, that, that um, they weren't used to them, you know, which, which, which comes to the same thing, you know. Um, you know, when, when newspapers were first became – printing presses became cheap enough and paper and so on became cheap enough that every town had a local newspaper. There, there's a hilarious Mark Twain story about the nature of small-town journalism, you know, and they, you know, with everybody shooting each other. Um, they, they, they were violently um, um, partisan, the news, newspapers were, and, uh, and uh, often set off riots and so on. Is it, that any change in, in media technology leads to a considerable disruption and the whole – the idea of a free press at all um, was uh, 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 you know, such a novelty in, 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 in Russia that it, that it must have probably provoked – uh, lots of things, rumors and distrust, and then, uh, Russian television, of course, kind of kind of comes to life at the maybe one of the worst periods of taste in television of all time. So I mean, they go directly from um, uh, you know whatever the televised version of Pravda was to um, uh, uh, to Duck Dynasty, you know, or or worse. You know. In observing uh, Trump as president, I spoke with uh, George Will recently, who recently had some very harsh words for mm, uh, mm. the president. And it's perhaps exciting is the wrong word, but it is and will be very intensely interesting to watch the uh, uh, derelict branch of government, Congress, and the sort of pushover branch of government, the courts, <laughs> have to – uh, maybe reassert their authorities in constraining the executive branch. I hope so. I mean, I, I, it had been a criticism of mine, and not mine alone, hardly. But uh, uh, the the, advent, the the executive branch has been accruing power to itself for a long time, and has accrued far too much power to itself, way out of constitutional bounds. It's a development that goes back probably as far as Lincoln. You know, I mean, this is nothing new. But over the past 70 years or so, it's become truly obnoxious, and um, and this needed to be dialed back. Maybe, maybe Trump is the way, is God's way of of telling us to roll back the power of the of the executive branch. It'll be interesting to see if the other two branches are up to the battle, especially Congress. Well, it, it's you know one as a libertarian, one might hope that uh, the election of Donald Trump uh, following on the presidency of Barack Obama, following on the presidency of George W. Bush, that respect for the Oval Office would have declined to such a degree that we might not ask the executive branch to do very much. But it seems that quite the opposite is the case. Yes, at least for the time being, it seems that the opposite. I, you know, actually, I don't want less respect for the executive branch. I'd like more respect for the executive branch. I just like less authority. I'd like the executive branch to have less authority, which I think might give it more respect. You know, I have nothing against a good old figurehead president. You know, who's a, a you know sort of acts as a focus of national unity and you know if if somewhat platitudinous. You know, I mean. Uh, 
harmless. Um, you know, um, Ike acted kind of in that role, and he was actually, in point of fact, a very good president. He kept us out of a, a number of got us out of one foreign entanglement we didn't belong to and kept us out of several others, uh, kept the military adequately strong without overdoing it, kept the, did his level best to keep the balance, but the budget balanced and actually succeeded in a couple of years, uh, not as often as he would like to, but he kept the deficit with it, certainly within bounds, kept the national, actually lowered the national debt in one year. I think it was uh, 58, he actually managed to lower the national deficit or national debt. And um, yeah, so that kind of president wouldn't bug me a, a, a bit, you know. And then in comes the activists, you know, Kennedy and then, of course, much worse, Johnson. Is there uh, – do you think there's hope for a presidential candidate in the future who promises to do nothing or promises to – look – promises to say, well, look, I don't really have the power to do all these things you want me to do. Well, uh, you know, past uh, experience would tell us that there, you know, that there, there are cycles like that. Um, uh, Harding wasn't a very good president, but he wasn't an activist president. And, um, uh, and Coolidge really sort of fulfilled that ideal. Alas, um, Hoover was almost as bad in fact, he was probably more of a technocrat than, than, than uh, Franklin Roosevelt, um, probably uh, less oppressively so. But nonetheless, uh, many, many of the programs of the New Deal, people now forget, were initiated under, under Hoover. Yeah, he doesn't get much credit for radically expanding government. <laughs> uh, or blame. You know? And he deserves, you know, he deserves the credit for trying to do something about a crisis, um, um, uh, and but he deserves the blame for the radical expansion of government. But then we got, you know, um, Eisenhower. Uh, you know, we got eight years. Uh, we seem to have; they seem to be relatively brief respites uh, that 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 we get from activist expansionist uh, uh, presidents. Um, but yeah, I think it could come back. And you know, one nice thing about these these populist outbursts in America, so with the exception of the Civil War, which was the worst of them, they tend to burn out rather quickly. The Jacksonian Democrats burned out rather quickly. The uh, William Jennings uh, Bryan Democrats never really burned up. You know, you know didn't wasn't wasn't there that much there to burn out. Uh, ditto with the Know Nothing Party earlier and so on. So. While America will have these spasms of angry populism, they usually don't last terribly long. Are you eligible to run for president? <laughs> no, in so many, many ways. <laughs> but what about just the technical ways? <laughs> I suppose technically I am. Yeah. <laughs> Only very technically. Uh, you spoke uh, earlier about, you know, this this constant, uh, the constant decline of of. Uh, working age men working and uh, young people over generations choosing to stay in their uh, crappy small towns and that have only gotten worse uh, over time. And there's no public pol clear public policy answer to any, any of that stuff. No, I don't know. There most certainly is not. In fact, there are unanswers. You know, I mean, the, the um, elimination of the um, it was interesting talking um, today uh, um, about uh, the you know the social how, how, to to what degree is the 
is the um, 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 social safety net actually a spider's web? You know, it catches people and then out comes the spider. <laughs> and you get wrapped in the, in the uh, cocoon. I mean, we don't want in, in the complexity of the, of, uh, uh, and the size of population of the modern world, the, modern, the disconnect in the modern world, I mean, only 100 years ago, we all lived in relatively small communities where we had a sort of social safe. Most of us had something of a sort of social – not that there wasn't grinding poverty. But um, in today's uh, 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 world, we, we do want – I mean, we, 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 we mustn't let people starve. We, you know, I mean, there's, we don't want a world without charity. Um, and there probably will almost inevitably, uh, even if we libertarians sort of disapprove of it, there will almost inevitably be a governmental side to this in, 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 in some way. But the social safety net that we have created seems to be more of a trap than, uh, um, you know, in the initial year or two after the Great Society programs uh, came in, there was a, a slight fall in the percentage of poverty, but it's right back up there. Um, and, uh, you know, basically the, the um, uh, Johnson's Great Society, it failed. Um, it failed. It, it did keep some old people from being beggared by medical bills. You know, you can say that in its favor. And that's about all you can say in its favor. How is it that Republicans uh, can clap so loudly for uh, their own devastating failures? <laughs> I don't know. You know, the more I watch when I, I when I first came to Washington in the '80s and first began to observe politics, I thought I knew something about it. And as time goes by, I find I know less and less. And I think the reason that I know less and less is that. Um, I thought I understood um, the motivation of politicians and, and actually upon examination, the motivation for, 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 for politicians has, has something to do with like, like power, it really has to do with power and prestige. And the older I get, the less I understand that motivation. If the motivation were merely money, I'd say I would applaud, you know, because we can all understand motivations of mere greed. And after all, money is a neutral. It can be used to do good, can be used to do bad, can be used to do fun. Um, but I now realize that I just truly don't understand what drives a politician. I look at maybe it had to happen that finally the Two pres uh, finally, I was watching a race where the two presidents were spot on my age. Hillary and I are the, exactly the same age. Trump's one year older. And I'm watching them running around, getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and eating these horrible meals at diners and flying all over the place. You know, and I go, I think they're crazy. They're obviously completely crazy. I couldn't, I, I couldn't do that. Hillary kept getting sick. Well, of course she kept getting sick, you know, like one week of her schedule and I'd be flat in bed for six months. You know? There is a, another side to uh, politicians that uh, I think confuses me and perhaps you and that is in almost every area of our endeavor, our reputation suffers based upon individual actions that we take that don't comport with either what we said we would do 
or what we've agreed to or some pattern of behavior that we've established. But That's for certainly politi- true in a marriage, yes. <laughs> but, but for uh, a politician, that is a basic survival mechanism to uh, escape accountability, to thread the needle of, of actually not doing the things you said you were going to do. And that is, that is of benefit so often to uh, political people. Yeah, it is. And uh, why do voters get let them get away with it? Well, um, in a sense, um, voters didn't. Um, um, you know, one of the things I keep – even now I'll keep hearing about Trump's, well, he's going to do what he said he'd do. You know? It's obvious people don't pay much attention in the first place to what politicians do. And I think, of course, there's a deliberate um, opaqueness in, in legislation. Uh, I was talking to a lobbyist friend of mine, and I happen to pro- approve of lobbyists because um, everybody needs protection from the government, and, and anybody who's in any kind of business needs some protection from the government, and that's what lobbyists do. You know, is trying to, you know, they're they're your they're your lawyer in the, in 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 a, you know in your in this Kafka court um, uh, in which all businesses are constantly being tried. Um, but anyway, he was saying that. Um, um, the the growth of omnibus legislation where they, they may have one little thing. Uh, he happens to work for um, um, small uh, uh, chains of retail stores. It's an, or, an organization of small chains of retail stores. And there might be one little thing that they're after, you know, um, a federal soda tax or something, you know, or some sort of, of uh, 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 you know, labeling requirement that's really inconvenient to the stores. And um, and they used to be able to talk sense to the legislators um, and and make some donations, you know, (laughs) you do the usual political stuff. But now, like, the legislators still want the campaign contributions and they still want the support from the lobbyist group, but then they will immediately claim that the small piece of legislation – that the that this lobby was interested in is buried somewhere in some big omnibus bill, and they have no choice except to go thumbs up or thumbs down on this bill according to party discipline. And so this is really frustrating. My obvious friend, he said, you know, he just he said, I don't know what I'm here for anymore. And, and for every person who is genuinely interested in liberty, say in the Senate or the House, uh, they in some ways benefit from having somebody like Chuck Schumer on the other side who's going to bring up these ideas that these people are going to fight against yes. and and help Chuck Schumer could raise a lot of money frankly for the liberty interested people. Yeah, yes, well that's actually yeah, paradoxically true. You know, <laughs> You know, it's but you know it's the kind of help I wish we didn't have. You are visiting us from uh, beautiful scenic New Hampshire. Yeah, mud, uh, the, during the mud and bug season, <laughs> not hard to get me out of there now. You're here on the occasion of Cato's 40th anniversary, yeah. which we began uh, celebrating uh, this weekend. What has Cato uh, meant to you and your work, and uh, in your view, public policy in general? Well, I mean, the first and most important thing is it's, you know, it, it, it keeps me attached to my bedrock libertarian principles. You know, whenever I start to get above myself and think I have a swell policy idea, all I have to do is talk to the folks over here to, to, to be reminded that people ought to be left alone. You know, <laughs> they don't need any more smart ideas from me. 
not that those smart ideas would go anywhere anyway. But much, what's what's really important in my symbiotic relationship w- with Cato is is that I like to try and help Cato out, um, you know, as 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 best I can. And in return, Cato is just a wonderful source of research for me. Whenever I want a nonpartisan. Um, uh, a view of an issue or you know policy proposal or a piece of legislation and I want to make sure that that, that nonpartisan view is grounded in a respect for human liberty I know right where to go you know I might not perfectly um, agree with the conclusions drawn but I can I have never in my 30 some years of involvement with Cato been disappointed by the quality of the research. The quality of the research is, is absolutely fabulous. And so that's the big thing for me. P.J. O'Rourke is author of How the Hell Did This Happen? He's also a Cato Institute H.L. Mencken Research Fellow. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>